1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Cyber reconnaissance of Turkish financial institutions is reported. Hidden cobra is the suspect. The Chinese government appears to have finagled its national vulnerability database to afford misdirection to cyber operations. Crypto-mining attempts hit Windows endpoints. Other crypto-jacking campaigns afflict vulnerable servers. Memcrash DDoS hits new targets. And the U.S. administration hints at possible cyber policy changes. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, March 9th, 2018. There appears to be a reconnaissance campaign underway, conducted by North Korea in what appears to be preparation for state-directed looting. According to McAfee, North Korean threat actor Hidden Cobra is prospecting Turkish financial institutions. The campaign appears to be reconnaissance for some larger future operation yet to develop. It's likely the Turkish financial sector is a set of targets of opportunity in the DPRK's ongoing efforts to redress the pressure international sanctions have imposed on its country. It's worth recalling, however, that not everything that looks like the DPRK hack is. Something that's pretty clearly not Pyongyang's work is the series of attacks surrounding last month's Winter Olympics. Signs pointing toward North Korea in those attacks are now generally regarded as false flags, probably hoisted by Russian state operators. Recorded Future has a report on China's national vulnerability database, the CNNVD, Dating in that database seems to have been altered in ways designed to obscure Chinese government hacking. We'll have a conversation with one of their lead researchers later in this podcast. At midweek, Microsoft succeeded in stopping a large-scale cryptojacking infestation that attempted to infect some 400,000 users over the space of a few hours. The mining software was carried as the payload of the Dofoil, or Smoke Loader Trojan. The mining application supports NiceHash, and so can work with a variety of cryptocurrencies. Other crypto mining attacks are afflicting a variety of servers. The Sands Institute particularly notes attempts on vulnerable Apache, Solar, Redis, and Windows servers. Memcrash distributed denial-of-service attacks have spread across a variety of targets. In addition to the well-known attack on GitHub, other victims have included Google, the National Rifle Association, PlayStation Network, Amazon, and Kaspersky. These are only some of the more high-profile victims. There have been others. Recall that Carrero reported earlier this week that it had found a kill switch for this exploit. May it soon be put to good use. A debugging app appears to have been left on OnePlus phones, leaving them open to attackers who could abuse the app to obtain root access. In patching news, Adobe has issued more than 50 fixes for Flash Player, Acrobat, and Reader. In the U.S., White House officials note that cybersecurity reports required of federal agencies under Executive Order 13800 are for the most part in, and that the public can expect to see policy changes as a result. Some administration officials are hinting at more extensive information sharing. SINET itsef wrapped up yesterday. We'll have more extensive reports on the proceedings up on our website early in the coming week. We will offer a brief account of one point several speakers made yesterday. Some of yesterday's presentations touched on resilience, and the speakers all agreed on the importance of planning and practice in achieving resilience, the ability to continue to do business in the aftermath of a successful cyberattack. That planning and practice should, the experts who spoke said, concentrate on incident response. More than one speaker thought the military model of planning, exercising those plans, refining them, and using them to inculcate a sense of the plan's total goal in those who will have to manage the incident response, can serve as a very useful model for businesses to adapt to their own needs. Finally, we've been following reports from the UK concerning the attempted assassination of a former GRU officer convicted by Russian courts of spying for British intelligence services, then resettled in the UK after a spy swap agreement. Russian media have been following the story as well, but from a different point of view. One prominent Russian television news presenter, while making a pro forma statement of opposition to violence, framed the news as a warning to traitors. The two targets of the attempt, which used a nerve agent, remain in serious condition, as does one of the first responders who came to their aid. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Uh, Emily, you were at a conference recently in New York, and and you came back uh, having heard from multiple people about when it comes to hiring folks in our business, in cybersecurity, this notion that we can't spend our way to security. Fill us in here. What did you hear?
2: I heard this a couple different ways. One, you can't spend your way to zero risk. And you also can't spend your way to complete security. You can't spend enough money to solve all of your problems with technology. And on the heels of that, I also heard a lot of conversations about issues around recruiting, that we can't spend our way out of the staffing deficit that we're going to be facing over the next couple of years, right? We're in a world now where every company is a technology company one way or another and everyone is facing these deficits in resources and in budget and you need to recruit effectively. You need to bring on people who can face these challenges and the technical workforce just isn't going to grow rapidly enough over the next several years to account for that.
1: Yeah, But I hear stories uh, from HR folks and recruiting folks about uh, people you know, bouncing from place to place they're given, uh, you know, five-figure bonuses to jump back and forth. So uh, while on the one side I I hear you that people say we can't do this, it seems from a practical matter lots of people still are.
2: And I think we'll see how that bears out over the next couple of years, right? It's a, I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is a desire to um, build solutions that are smart enough that you can, you know, staff with the resources that you have, right? Mm -hmm. We hear a lot about that. Um, but I think one of the other things here is not just drawing on people who are coming out of computer science backgrounds. A lot of these considerations in recruiting, and this is something else that I heard people talking about this past week, uh, is the kind of diversity of thought in the workforce. So not just looking at having people in computer science being drawn into tech, but people from a variety of different backgrounds, whether you're talking about you know liberal arts or other parts of STEM. Being able to bring those people in um, and kind of draw them in some of these more technical fields, we, we need that, right? That's something that, that we have where I work, which is really helpful. You have people solving problems from a variety of different backgrounds. And I think it's this idea that tech cannot be staffed by tech people alone.
1: And do you think that's actually happening? Do you think it's being paid more than just lip service?
2: I think it's hard to tell right now. I don't think it's as widespread as it could be because it strikes me as the kind of thing that when I see it happening, I notice because it stands out. And so I think some companies are doing a good job of this. I think this is something that's being discussed in a lot of communities. And I think it's a little too early to know yet if we're we're drawing enough people in.
1: Yeah, it strikes me as something that I, I can understand a company being hesitant to do that because they could perceive the risk as being high, but then, if you see the true benefits of having that diversity of thought uh, that it is a better way to solve problems, then I suspect you'd be all in with it
2: right. and I, I think there's a a way to be reasonable about this, right? You obviously need to have someone who is qualified for the job that they are taking on. I'm not suggesting that you hire you know someone to be a software engineer who doesn't know how to code, right But I think when you're looking at backgrounds. I think looking at skill sets as much as you look at familiarity with an industry, industries can be learned. Skills can be learned too, but not all of us in cybersecurity come from computer science backgrounds. A lot of us come from a lot of other fields, a lot of other experiences. I think being open to that and hiring is uh, is going to be a good move for a lot of companies.
1: Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. And they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of Airpods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is Priscilla Moriucci. She's the Director of Strategic Threat Development at Recorded Future and co-author of their newly published research, Chinese Government Alters Threat Database Records. It takes a closer look at the CNNVD, the Chinese National Vulnerability Database, and discovers Chinese government manipulation of data, which could have an effect on security researchers.
0: We wanted to see which one was faster, which one was more comprehensive, you know, if there was any way... You know, mainly for our customers, right? To get the most comprehensive view of of uh, which vulnerabilities, you know, could be covered and how fast we could do it. So, you know, we profiled the two databases, um, and we found, you know, for example, that China's vulnerability database or CNNVD, they're generally faster than the U.S. NVD when it comes to publicizing and publishing vulnerabilities takes them on average about 13 days and it takes the US NBD on average 33 days. There are also like almost 1800 CVEs that were currently in CNNVD, but were not in US NBD. Um, So we kind of started there and then we went and we decided to dig a little further into CNNVD data. So we kind of hypothesized uh, that because CNNVD is so fast on average and US NBD is, is slower, that if we look at a group of CVE where China is very slow, but the U.S. is very fast, right? that might give us insight into China's process.
1: And, and there's a there's a component to this as well, where the CNNVD um, is a component of the Ministry of State Security. Can you describe the background with that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the Ministry of State Security, or the MSS, is roughly China's equivalent to the American CIA. So they have a foreign intelligence, uh, they're like a foreign human intelligence organization, um, but they also do, like half of their mandate is domestic intelligence, right? Keeping an eye on their citizens and making sure that the the party, Communist Party can stay in power, right? So the MSS, you know, there hasn't been a lot sort of known on, on how the MSS works like within China and within sort of China's Broad like information security system. So when we were doing the research, this particular research, you know, we were able to discover that uh, the MSS actually runs China's national vulnerability database, which is sort of the equivalent to like in the U.S. the CIA running USNVD, which is not the case right. in the United right. States. Department of Homeland Security and the National Institute for Standards runs the USNVD. In China, the equivalent CIA or the MSS runs China's. Uh, NVD. So that was kind of a a disturbing trend in terms of the mission of NVDs. So mission in our mind, the mission of of NVDs is a public service mission, right, to put out information on vulnerabilities, you know, so that companies, individuals and individuals can protect their own networks. Um, And, you know, the U.S., It's not perfect, of course, nobody's perfect, Um, but China really doesn't seem to take this public service mission very seriously when they have, you know, their primary intelligence service running, right, their their NVD.
1: Take us through the deeper digging that you did and what you discovered.
0: So when we looked at these, what we'll call statistical outliers, so these vulnerabilities where uh, NVD took six days or less to publish and CNNVD took over four weeks right so it's a we're trying to account for like bureaucratic lags and and things like that so um when we got that number originally there were about 287 vulnerabilities that fell into that category when we did a lot of research on those vulnerabilities um we found out that we had likely discovered what we call the threat evaluation process where you know the mss was using cnnvd uh to evaluate high-threat vulnerabilities for use in their own offensive operations. So, for example, a, a vulnerability would get discovered by CNNVD. Uh, we saw evidence of this process, a sort of uh, evaluation process, and hiding these vulnerabilities from publication in the data that we saw.
1: So you all uh, conclude that there's this lag going on with some of these vulnerabilities come to these conclusions. And so in your mind, that's a way to track which uh, vulnerabilities China is interested in exploiting for their own use. Uh, but then it gets a little more interesting from there.
0: Yeah. So you know, we kind of did that research and we decided to take a look at it again um, last month to do kind of a six-month follow-through to see if anything had changed. So, you know, when we re-examined the data from the NVD side, for example, we saw that the US NVD had gotten a little faster right so the average delay had dropped from 33 days to 27 days which is good uh nvd was also catching up on the backlog of unpublished cves they had published almost a thousand cves in just a couple months of that backlog so that was quite good um and then we sort of took a look at the cnnvd data we're trying just trying to see what they had you know if anything had changed Um, and what we discovered was We started looking at the initial publication dates for these outlier CVEs, and we realized that instead of like trying to remove the MSS or the influence of security services over this transparency process, essentially they decided they tried to cover it up by backdating the initial publication date of 99% of the CVEs that we identified. They've sort of, one, tacitly confirmed, right, that they're right. actually using <laughs> CNNVD, you know, as a, as a kind of experiment and testing ground, right, for vulnerabilities that they could find useful. Um, they're trying to hide the evidence of this process, right, and and we think limit the methods in which, you know, cybersecurity researchers and professionals can use to try and anticipate Chinese APT behavior.
1: So take us through why this matters. How does this affect security researchers?
0: For security researchers, right, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to anticipate, at least from the MSS and, and vulnerability side, you know, which uh, vulnerabilities that the MSS may be using. But, uh, you know, I, I think more broadly, you know, we're we're sort of talking about a system, China's manipulation of, of their NVD data fits it into this larger sort of MO, right, that they have, which is kind of data control. Right, controlling the data of their own citizens, of foreign companies, right within the country, um, and and how that that impacts, uh, you know, foreigners and particularly Westerners. Right, for those of us kind of who are listening here, it it takes you back to some kind of, kind of research that we've done earlier on China's cybersecurity law, which is kind of like their information control law, um, and how that requires Western companies, for example, to submit to these reviews, right, that are run by the MSS, you know, of their technology. And we really see this this data manipulation, right, by CNNBD as all part of this larger system of control that China is imposing, not just on its own people, but on anyone, any company, any entity, right, that does business or travels to China. So that's meaningful, you know, for for all of us, really, because we all use products from large multinational companies, right, products that, you know, have, store and use our data, for example, um, you know, and it could be privacy concern for some people in the future. This is sort of just one thread of, of a larger story about how uh, China is controlling of their information and manipulation of, of the domestic Chinese information environment, how it can affect sort of the whole world.
1: That's Priscilla Moriucci from Recorded Future. There's an extended version of this interview on this week's Recorded Future podcast. You can check that out at recordedfuture.com/podcast. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland, out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpi. And I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network